Hi everyone, Drew Proyd here from the Broken Brain Podcast, and on today's episode, we have my dear friend, Sean Stevenson, who's here to teach us how to supercharge our sleep by sleeping smarter. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Proyd. Each week, we bring on a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live your best life. This week's guest is my friend, Sean Stevenson. Sean Stevenson is the author of the international best-selling book, Sleep Smarter, and the creator of the Model Health Show, featured as the number one health podcast on iTunes with millions of downloads each year. A graduate of the University of Missouri, St. Louis, Sean studied business, biology, kinesiology, and went on to be the founder of the Advanced Integrative Health Alliance, a company that provides wellness services for individuals and organizations worldwide. Sean has been featured in Entrepreneurial Magazine, Fast Company, Forbes, Men's Health Magazine, The Dr. Oz Show, ESPN, CNN, and many other major media outlets. To learn more about Sean, visit themodelhealthshow.com or check out his podcast. I'm a fan. Sean, thank you for being here on the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm so grateful to be here, man. And you were just in our series, which is live right now, and people are watching you talk about uh, one of your favorite subjects to talk about sleep. And we're going to dig into that into the podcast. But I love starting with a little bit of an origin story. You have an incredible story of your own health issues. And in fact, you're, in your background, you were diagnosed with a degenerative disc disease. Tell us a little about it and how that led you to multiple doctors and how you ultimately came out of it. Sure, yeah. And what's so crazy about it is I was just 20 years old when I got the diagnosis it's usually reserved for folks a little bit older, and the severity was very abnormal, apparently. And my physician at the time sent me in. I was having leg pain, right, the sciatic nerve pain, which I didn't know what it was then. I just thought maybe it was pulled a muscle. I don't know what it is. It's just nagging me. And so I went in to see him, and he sent me in for, for an MRI, which is a freaky, weird thing in the first place to get an MRI right. machine. Shout out to anybody who's ever done it. <laughs> and my legs were hanging out of the machine. And I'm like, my legs hurting. Why are they taking pictures of my back? Because I didn't relate the two. I, had, I was so unaware of the connection of our bodies at the time. And he, I came in. He put the MRI up for me to see. And I was just like, okay, how do we fix this? Let's go. And he was like, he literally kind of looked at me and kind of like, you know, pump, pump the brakes. Slow down, young fella. Uh, I want you to take a look at this. And he showed me a little bit deeper, and I saw I had two herniated discs. And he told me that I had this condition called degenerative disc disease. And also I had degenerative bone disease. I'd broken my hip a couple years before that, just running. And at the time, hearing a message like that, it was pretty abnormal and strange because still I'm processing like, whoa, wait, what does all this mean? And I'm still thinking, okay, so what do we do? How do we fix it? And And... Listen, this is one of those weird moments in life, crazy, like, out-of-body experiences. But I feel like my myself now jumped back into my past self. And I'm a very analytical person, by the way. But just, like, in thinking of terms of a movie. And I asked him, which I had no grounds to ask this question. That's why I think it was, like, some kind of weird inception. thing. Yeah, inception <laughs> myself. And I asked him, does this have anything to do, to do with what I'm eating? And he literally like cocked his head and looked at me like it's crazy, like I'm crazy and like, like shook his nuts. head. And he said, this has nothing to do with what you're eating. This is just something that happens. And I'm sorry that it happened to you. And he said, we're going to help you to manage this, but this is incurable. 
and he sent me on my way. You know, I had a prescription. Eventually, he got fitted for a back brace, and uh, that was my story. You know, this is something that you're just going to have to deal with. You can never get better. And a lot of folks don't realize this, but placebos are incredibly powerful, right? When we have the gold standard of clinical trials done, it's a double-blind, placebo-controlled. So what does that mean, placebo-controlled? We have to account for the placebo working because it so frequently works. The power of our mind. On average, placebos work about 33% of the time in clinical trials, on average. Sometimes more, you know, upwards of 80%. And sometimes it's, you know, negligible, you know, a few percent here or there. But just the belief that you're taking a medication that is going to normalize your blood sugar, it happens. Or reduce your hypertension or even kill cancer cells. And also this applies to surgeries as well. We've done like sham surgeries and seeing just people thinking that they had this surgery done to repair their, you know, their meniscus or something like that. And they get better, right? This is the power of the mind. And um, this is kind of getting into some meta stuff, but I just want people to understand that we're very, very powerful. But those are positive injunctions, okay, from an authority figure. I was given a nocebo effect. It's the opposite. It's when you get a negative injunction that something bad is going to happen. This is when you hear the story of you'll never walk again. Uh, You have six weeks to live. This is incurable, right? Those kind of stories. And most people proceed to have those things happen. But you always hear about those stories of the rare few that don't accept it. And they say, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to beat this. So I was really a kind of a slow learner in this whole story in the beginning. And so it actually was two years went by with this diagnosis. And I went from a nuisance of a pain to chronic debilitating pain. I'm talking like, on a, and I don't talk about this stuff lightly, but on a scale of one to 10, like it was a level 10 excruciating, the most intense thing you could experience, like just shooting down my leg and like physically making me jerk. But it would only happen, it's like a microsecond. Like it would happen and then it's gone. It was like a ghost. And it was just kind of Every time I'd stand up from a sitting position, it had to happen before I can have a normal gait. Mm -hmm. And so I became afraid. And I didn't know this till years later, but I literally became afraid to stand up. And so I didn't as much as possible. I just sat on my little uh, college love seat in my college apartment to the degree that my my big butt ended up breaking the the couch through. And I ended up putting a bunch of pillows under there. It's a whole other story. And, um, you know, but from that place, I just sat around, played a bunch of Madden and you know, ate what I lovingly call the the tough diet, which is TUF, typical university food. And I gained about 40 pounds. And, um, but here's the, the good part of the story, the, the twist. And it was, it took two years, but after getting a couple of other evaluations, which I, I recommend everybody listening, if you ever get a bill of bad news like that, like you have some Uh, life-threatening or serious condition, definitely seek out a second and even third opinion in some cases before you make any harsh decisions, right? Just take your time, really think this stuff through because a lot of times in our our kind of conventional medicine system, when you come in for a problem, it's like all hands on deck, it's emergency, and most of the time it's not. Like even with cancer, many, when we have measurable cancer cells, like most of the time it's taken years for that to develop, like you got a week, you know, like you don't have to rush in right now. Yeah, for, you can take time to make the decision. Yes, at least feel talk with your family, yourself. you know, look at your options. Right. Don't let that fear start to control you. And not saying that that's not the right option to take is going into the chemotherapy, but just take some time and process things. So anyways, 
after getting this last bit of bad news, the same, the physician said the same thing as the first guy that, you know, this is incurable. I sat on the side of my bed, which I didn't have a bed frame because I was a college student and I didn't have my stuff together. But I sat on the side of my mattress and I was holding my pill bottle in my hand. I had a combination. I had Tylenol PM, Celebrex, and something else. It basically just tried to knock me out because the pain would wake me up at night. And it just kind of came rushing into my mind. Honestly, it was I, was I thought about my grandmother and just like she always would instill in me and, and kind of tell other people like I was going to do something special with my life. And it's just like, what am I doing? Here I am, like I've given up. And I just put all my faith in what these well-meaning people have told me about what's possible for me. And in that moment, I realized that I'd, I'd been giving my power away. But it wasn't in those terms. But I realized that I, if, if I'm going to get better, I need to do something. I've been pointing the finger like, why won't they help me? I just need them to do this. I wasn't doing anything. And the worst thing that you can do is to do nothing. And I, they gave me permission to not do nothing, to try to protect myself. But long story short, to put the icing on the cake here, when I decided to get well, which most people never do, it's more like, I'll try. We'll see what happens. I wish this would work. I hope this works. When you decide, it's like burning the boats. Like, there's no other option. This and, is happening. And do you think that you got there because it just literally got so bad? Yeah, I was Like, you didn't bottom. read anything. You didn't, it's just like, it got so bad that you had like your little moment or big moment of Satari, like an awakening. And you were like, I'm just, I'm just done. Yeah. I, I didn't know what personal development was. Like, I didn't. I didn't know any of this stuff. I just, rock bottom is sometimes the best place to be because the only where place you can go is up. And if I was going to enjoy my life in any form or fashion, I need to get up and do something about it. Like literally, metaphorically and literally as well, you know? And so I put a plan together. This is a difference too. It's like, it wasn't some magical moment at the time. Like, you know, the clouds didn't part in my apartment and like a rainbow shot in. It was like, okay, I'm going to put a plan together. And that plan entailed three things. And one of them was changing the way I was eating because I was making my tissues out of straight garbage food. Just like my beverage of choice, I barely drank water. I maybe had a glass of water a day. Sunny D, all right? It's not even orange juice, right? It's like orange juice milk mixed with like baby formula. It's so nasty, <laughs> man. But that's Some like, delight. that's where I was drinking, man. And it's like a lot of fast food pretty every day, every day. And it's a very simple principle of the body. Your body cannot rebuild tissues if it doesn't have the raw materials. There's a lot of biological transmutation. Your body can make stuff out of stuff. But for the most part, if you're not providing your body basic, like fundamental components, it just can't do the job. It's going to do the best it can. And I asked also, and this is a, also another little shout out for everybody is understand the power of questions because questions in many cases, questions are the answer because they drive our thought process. They really drive what our brain's operating system is doing and looking for. And most of the time though, we're asking disempowering questions like, you know, why me? Why is this happening to me? I started to ask things, very simple questions like, okay, my discs are degenerated. What are they made of? Simple thing I never thought about. My bones were degenerating. My bone density was super low. What are my bones actually made of? Because I knew from marketing calcium, that's all I knew. But I'm guzzling milk and Sunny D and it's not helping. <laughs> and so that sent me on a path, my brain looking for answers. And so I find out about 
like a dozen other things that are more important than calcium when it comes to building our bones, silica and magnesium and K2 and vitamin D, all this stuff. And I wasn't getting none of that in my diet. And with my disc, I found out that, okay, the number one component here is water. And I'm like, I'm not kidding. Some days I just wouldn't drink water. And we, we say this in culture, like, you know, you can only go a few days without water. I'm living proof. You know, like your body will, I'm sure it was like stealing some water from here and there. Right. Sunny D's got a little water, maybe not the best quality. Yeah. And I wasn't, (laughs) I was definitely was not thriving, but you know, you can, you can make it. So what even was your, what even do you think led you to that place to even ask, like, is it what I'm eating again? Was it an inception moment? You know, did you have any sort of people around you that were talking about food in any capacity and wellness? So you're getting me to go to the the behind story, you know, like, so um, I can think that it's a future to past jump, but it was really something from the past. And I definitely picked something up because prior to this happening, I was getting into a little bit of the fitness culture. Okay. You know, I was an athlete in high school, like a really high level. And, but I kind of hung up that because I kept breaking down. Like my body just kept falling apart. Like I broke my hip in high school at track practice. And so I started to hang out with these guys and they were like, you know, taking supplements and, you know, like all these big horse pills, like these, you know, amino acids and creatines and all this stuff. And like, you know, you're supposed to eat so much protein. So I, I was remotely aware that some of this stuff matters. So that's really Got what it. it was. You're the okay. first person to ask me that. Like, where did it really come from? Yeah. And so with the disc, and here's something really interesting and really cool about the body, but it can mess you up. Your introvertible discs are kind of like, a lot of people think of them in terms of like shock absorbers, but they're so much more than that. They really allow for movement. And my discs were so degenerated that my physician told me I had the spine of an 80-year-old man when I was 20. And asking the question, okay, so they're mainly made of water, but I found out that they're non-vascular. So that means when you drink water, it doesn't just go there. Like blood flow and nutrients don't just go there. It was something that I, and I didn't understand at the time, it's something, it's a process called remote diffusion. And so basically, just to make it super simple, stuff gets there last, basically. You have to have leftover. Like your body's going to use water for your brain, your blood, things that it deems, your body kind of works on a hierarchy system that it deems more important. And your body will literally leach and pull nutrients from your bones to aid in clotting your blood, for example, if you're deficient in things like calcium. Right. Which is how osteoporosis can happen in some people. Simple stuff. Nutrient deficiencies can cause a lot of these problems. And so I began to do this practice. I call it, I was calling it at the time, like getting super hydrated. And so I was drinking like a liter of water every day just to start my day as soon as I get up first thing. And now I call it my inner bath. And I've like taught that to like probably a couple million people know about this now. But it's one of those little leverage points that really changed a lot for me. My energy got better. I was in less pain, like it was less intense. And over the course of about six weeks, I actually lost 20 pounds. Wow. Changing the way that I was eating. and But at the time, the lowest hanging fruit was simply instead of eating this McDonald's trash burger, I was like going to Whole Foods or it was Wild Oats at the time and get like grass-fed burger. I just did, I was doing the same thing, but better quality, you know? And like, instead of like the extra large, what was it? Supersize me. Instead of the supersized fries, I'd do like broccoli or something. And and just self-navigating, going to Wild Oats, just going through the aisles and reading on your own a little bit and trying to just do the best you know how. You know, it's always Any guidance. It's always guidance. See, you know it, man. It's always there's always like 
somebody there because if you can't see it, you can't be it. And so it was a chiropractor friend of mine, mm. which just for in any, first of all, I'm like, you guys are so weird, right? Like just even all the stuff they're doing, but it was, uh, you know, this woman and uh, she took me to Wild Oats the first time. And it, this was when I was really, I was starting to get better and it blew my mind. I was like, all this stuff exists. And so I literally would spend hours there, like, you know, reading these, the different, um, natural healing books with all the, you know, different things for nutrients. They would have them like the corner. You can go find them. Yeah. And they were thick, man, thick books (laughs) and just reading that and the supplements. But there's a really tricky spot because you could become a natural pill popper, right? You're taking that allopathic approach, which is what I was doing at first before I asked, okay, what kind of foods can I find these things in? Because it's much more intelligent and, um, nutrition was huge. My movement practices, because your body then. I really like to share this because we think that, you know, if we want to get fit, you know, if people want to get the flat stomach, get the abs, exercise, but exercise, like that's a side effect. The number one reason that your body, like your genes require exercise is because of assimilation of nutrients and elimination of waste. There was a study that I came across early on. It was on racehorses and which is a multi-billion, I'm sorry, multi, multi, multi million dollar industry, probably a billion dollar industry. And it's like if a horse breaks a bone, it's like millions of dollars lost. And so they went to find out can they increase these horses' bone density. And so they had a control group of horses that did nothing. And they had a study group where they gave the horses supplements like calcium and magnesium and all that stuff. And their bone density didn't increase. But they had another study group that they gave the horses supplements and walked the horses and saw a significant increase in bone density from there, far more than the other two groups. And so it's the movement that enables the cells to really draw in and pull in all the good stuff you might be taking in. And get rid of the bad stuff through your lymphatic system. Lymphatic system, system not drainage. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that little formula and the final piece was, was sleep. Little did I know at the time how much it mattered and how little I was sleeping. It was more like pseudo sleep because I was drugged. And when I started to sleep well because of things I was changing in the day, and I didn't know this at the time. It wasn't until years later in my clinical practice as a nutritionist that I knew this stuff. But I started changing things during the day, and I started sleeping better. And when I started sleeping well, I got better really quickly. And um, at the end of the story, nine months later, I got a scan done. My two herniated discs had retracted. My bone density was back to that of a 20-year-old. And, you know, here I am today. You know, there's Something that the doctor said would have never happened. Yeah. And I remember he was standing there looking at the MRI. Same doctor. The scan. No, it's a different one. It was, it was a later doctor. Later doctor. And he, just, he literally said these words. He said, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. You know, I've heard that so many times from friends, people that have gone through similar stories. It's like, look, I don't know how to explain it, but whatever, if it's working, just keep doing it. So when was the point in time that you first, separate from the scans, that you noticed a significant, you know, a lot of people out there that are listening have had sciatic pain. When was the first time after following that protocol, following that plan that you designed for yourself, going down this journey, when did you notice like, whoa, I don't have the same pain that I did So beautiful, man. It's such a good question because when you're you're healed, you forget about it. Like it literally had just, it was about six weeks later. And I realized, because I was just so in the flow of doing these good things for myself and feeling better, I realized I wasn't having the pain. And it was really a shocker for me because after two years, some many of us, we if we're dealing with something and it's been a long time, we feel like we can't get better now. It's just been so long that the body's been going through it. 
and it's just not true. Your body is always wanting to get in, get your, get you to a place of homeostasis and wellness. And yeah, it was six weeks later, the pain was completely gone. And I was like doing little stuff. I was scared. I was like, oh my God, I don't want to mess this up. And, but I just continued doing what I was doing. And when I started to get better and feel better, people on my campus, because I was in college at the time, started to notice like, because I didn't look like a guy who lost weight. I looked like a guy who became really healthy. And, you know, I just kind of had this like radiance to me that I never had in my entire life. Maybe since, I don't know if I was a baby, maybe. Um, but it was so crazy. Students would come up to me, fellow students in class. My professors would come up and ask, like, what did you do? And they became some of my first clients because the low-hanging fruit for me was fitness. And so I became a personal trainer and strength and conditioning coach. And I started to really become passionate to help other people to feel as good as I was feeling, you know. And especially those who were, like, hearing the story, like, you know, I've struggled so long and, every you know, tried this and failed. I really, really want to help them to figure it out. But it was really – the food was – the game changer. And that's why I focused on my coursework from there on in, in school, which was a lot of bad information, but just to become a nutritionist and to help people. Just to have that degree in backing so that you can go deeper and start now working with people. Yeah. So when you made that commitment, so first of all, you talk about your friends, what about your family, you know, what, your, what was your family think, thinking, you know, you've had, we've had a lot of people on this podcast that have everything from like family was super supportive to, cause you know, your family feels like they know you best. Uh, Dave Ramsey, a financial author, he says sometimes your your family has something called powdered butt syndrome, which means that if they wiped your butt when you were a kid, they don't want to take advice from you. So how was it with family and family dynamics? Yeah, I mean proximity is 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 crazy, you know. And I've the beautiful part is now that I've become aware and I've helped, you know, I've worked with thousands of people in a one on one context, and of course like millions of reach since. But talking to people and seeing most times their greatest obstacle is their family you know it's like really kind of where they point the finger of like you know if my husband if just you know the kids and like you know they're pointing the finger at other people and when they want they're like if i just wish my husband would do this i just wish my wife would be on board with this Mm. and or my mother i wish that my mother would listen to me because it's that proximity you know and i found ways that i can help people to kind of finesse and and coach them through how to actually make that transformation happen you know and so one of the little tips, if I could throw this in here. Please. So, guys, all right, specific, I'm talking about literally guys. We tend to think that we know everything, all right? And just, I know some people like, uh, women are like, yeah, you know, but we don't know that we're doing it, right? And we're also very big on problem solving, but we also want to feel like we know. We, we, we came up with the answer. And so, put it in. Put yourself in position to help the guy come up with the answer. Instead of trying to tell him what to do, ask questions so that he can come to the conclusion. All right. Now, we could do a whole show on that, so I don't want to take it any further. But you have to be more patient and begin to, again, questions are the answer. And uh, also provide resources. This is why we do what we do. So you don't have to try to do it. Send a podcast. You know, Send the Broken Brain podcast to somebody. And just be like, hey, I just listened to this. What do you think of this? This sounds crazy, but it's apparently working. You know, like be like kind of a little ignorant about it, you know, or give them a book or, you know, give resources. So just wanted to share that really quickly. But for my family, man, this is open. Like this is like my my family is is scattered. Like they're they're just a mess, you know. And it's beautiful because we, you know, we came from really trying situations. You know what I'm saying? So I the first part of my life. 
um, that I'm conscious of from like maybe four years old to the end of second grade. I live with my grandmother, suburban neighborhood. Nice. This is the, you know, I'm biracial. So this is the white side of my family. Order, uh, schedule, routine, certainty felt very safe and comfortable. And then my world was turned upside down when I went back to live with my mom. And uh, for third grade, I went from like uh, 90% white school to a 95% black school. And it was a big culture shock, but also the 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 experience of just living where we lived, you know, it was a lot more danger, a lot of violence, drug abuse, and even in my household. And so everybody, when I left the house, everybody started leaving the house, you know, even my little brother and sister who were just super young, you know. And so, but I was always still trying to help, you know, especially with my mom, you know, diabetes and all this stuff because of the culture that we grew up in. Right. And, you know, there were some great stories of me, like, you know, her going to the hospital for heart problems and helping her, you know, she lost like 50 pounds one time, you know, but people are who they are, you know. And so when I was going through my stuff with my, with my back issue, um, for my family, they were like, and I started to get better. And then also when I met my wife and her mother, who's been teaching meditation for like 30 years, and I started met, doing meditation, you know, my little brother was like, I was just hanging out in front of his house one day. He was like, I heard you've been meditating. <laughs> I was like, yeah. He was like, what? You know, because it just sounds so strange, right? So strange. But now my brother, man, he's he's killing it right now. He's just he's taking, taking care of himself. You know, he's hitting the gym. He's eating, eating good. But it just takes time. Too. It takes time. And the best thing you can do is just realize that everybody's on their own journey and lead by example. Exactly. You said it. Lead by example. I see your family on Instagram working out together, doing your thing, your sons, you and your wife at the gym together, making food together, dancing to Michael Jackson in the <laughs> living room. You know, you just got to lead by example and make it fun. Yes. Nobody wants, to be, nobody wants to be told what to do. But I see your family. I'm like, oh, these guys are having fun. I want to do this. That's it, man. And once you become conscious of creating the culture, it's very powerful and empowering. But you just said it's that secret ingredient is, is fun, man. And just that's really what I pride myself on doing with the work that I do is like making, because some of this stuff can be very, it can cause you to become neurotic. Totally. It's very like- People can become obsessive about it. Yes, you know, and also it, some people and, and some teachers who are great, you know, great people and have great messages, but they can be very black or white with stuff. And this is not in any uh, form or fashion how life is. There are so many gray areas. And so what I really pride myself on doing is making it entertaining, making it fun and approachable. And so people have more of those moments where they're like, of course, like that makes total sense. Instead mm. of like, you're doing it wrong. You're going to die. You know, <laughs> like that's just not appropriate. <laughs> well, I can't think of a, an area that sort of encompasses that in multiple different layers than sleep. You know, you wrote a book, you wrote the book on sleep, Sleep Smarter, uh, bestseller. Uh, I think it's a great opportunity for us to get into the, the culture of sleep and then sleep hygiene and a few other things around it. So first, let's start just big picture. Um, sleep is a big conversation. Yeah. How do you feel, having been in this space for a while, having written a book on the topic, how does it feel to like see so many people talking about sleep yeah. as it's a whole? It's incredibly refreshing because, you know, believe it or not, it was a pretty hard sell in the beginning. You know, um, publishers and agents were wanting me to change and focus more on food. Which is, you know, I'm a nutritionist, so it's, it's, you know, it's like, you can kill it with this. It was like, no, this needs to be done. Like, 
there is not a book like this out there and we need to give people this missing component, a huge missing component. And it was tough for me to accept it, honestly, myself, because I thought food was everything. Like, And it is very important. But your sleep is very likely more powerful than your, your food and exercise combined because really the magic really happens during sleep with all the stuff that you're doing during the day. And so it's incredibly refreshing to see, but there's still a lot of work to be done because our culture is only going to get more, you know, connected to our technology and kind of disconnected from some of these natural processes. But at the same time, there's this other huge movement of sleep wellness that's taking place. And so, you know, just putting myself in position and in, in this work and getting these messages out there and Man, it's really helped to kind of usher in a change now, you know, changing the culture. It's beautiful to see, but we still got a lot of work to do. Yeah, we got a lot of work. There's still a lot of confusion, a lot of myths that are out there. So let's give them the breakdown. So first and foremost, the reason that you came to this understanding, we were just chatting before we started recording, you were saying that, you know, you had all this empowerment about food, you had all this empowerment about movement, but you would see that there'd be these few patients, few people that you'd be working with directly who weren't getting better. And slowly that led to this revelation of their sleep. Yeah. How did that connection happen? What, what sorts of things were you seeing? People often don't, I would say that a lot of people don't even know they have a sleep problem. So what kind of problems were you seeing that then you connected into sleep and had you dive down that rabbit hole? Great question. Yeah. So yeah, that those people, that percentage is about like, for example, you know, type two diabetes, we would see close to 80% success rate with folks that are on, you know, metformin, some folks on insulin and helping them to, along with their physician, to get off their medication, normalize their blood sugar just by uh, diet and exercise. And, but there was always this percentage of people, you know, 20 to 30% that just wouldn't, it just wouldn't work. And it bothered me so much. And one day it took, and this was like about, this was about six years ago. And so I was in practice for like 10 years. Well, as a nutritionist full-time, maybe five years, but just in the fitness, 10 years. And I started to ask people about their sleep. And so I just surveyed, you know, people that were coming in during the day. I was like, so what, what's going on with your sleep? Tell me about that. And the stories people started to tell me, you know, some people, you know, I sleep three hours a night or, you know, I wake up eight times a night or, you know, I've got this going on, you know, I'm taking care of my, um, you know, my 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 kid who has a, a disability at night, like these are things I just didn't know. And so, and here's a really profound truth. People want change, but they don't want to change too much. And knowing that I knew, I knew that at the time already. And so I was like, okay, let me figure out how I can, let me find some clinically proven strategies that people can implement without turning their life upside down. Because the whole cookie cutter of like, you need to get eight hours of sleep. That's not going to work. Like this, their, this is their lifestyle. This is what they've known many times for years. And so I came to the table with some things. And people started putting them in place. My goodness. Like it's, I get chills just thinking about it, man. People would come in and, this, man, the stories. Like finally, after all this struggle, the, the 20 pounds would come off. Their blood sugar would normalize. The hypertension goes away. You know, in all these cases, just everything started to improve. And it's just like, it blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, there's something to this. And so that's when I dove in to the research, like for real. And I was like, more people need to know this. So the first in, in, incarnation of it was I did a couple of shows 
episodes of my show. On your podcast. Yeah, at the time. And they just blew up. Like, those are my most popular. It was like a three-part series really early on. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is really interesting. So then I, then I wrote the first version of Sleep Smarter, which sold, like, 15,000 copies very quickly. And then the major publishers were like, who is this guy, Sean? You know, and they got into this whole situation and vying for my attention. And ultimately, I wrote the version of Sleep Smarter Now uh, along with Rodale. And, you know, it's become an international bestseller. I think it's like 15 different languages translated, 20 countries. And Congratulations. Yeah, super powerful. But what I did was I put in the book 21 clinically proven strategies that people can implement that we're working on improving your sleep quality. At no point throughout the book do I say you need to sleep more. Because there are people who are sleeping for eight or nine hours that feel trashed. And because it's the quality, it's just like nutrition, right? We know now that all calories are not created equal. 300 calories of broccoli is going to impact your body very differently than 300 calories of Twinkies. And so for many people, they're getting Twinkie sleep to make a, a, meta, you know, a comparison. Yeah, it's like junk sleep because they're, they're not going through their sleep cycles effectively. And to really boil it down, what is sleep really? Because it's super weird. Like, well, for a long time in in modern medicine, they didn't really even understand fully why animals, including human beings, sleep. Like, it wasn't fully understood. So, help us understand, like, really, what is sleep? When you went to your publishers originally and said, "I want to do a sleep book," they're probably thinking like everything else, like sleep. What's what's like so complex about it, right? And yet, it's so deep. So, if somebody's really stepping into this subject and they don't know what sleep is, break it down for them. Absolutely, yeah. And so when it really boils down to it, because, and it's such a great point, because if it wasn't hyper-valuable, we would have evolved out of it a long time ago. But so many critical functions are dependent on sleep that we require it. Like, in, in all honesty, like, we are very vulnerable. Like, if you think about evolution, we're very vulnerable when we're sleeping. Extremely. And so, but there's so, we have this very evolved brain as well, and the number one thing driving our brain is our sleep quality, which we'll talk about today. Just hopefully people have their, their socks knocked off. And so what is sleep really? Well, all we can do is just look at what's happening in the brain when we're sleeping. That's how we know we're sleeping is a change in your brain waves. And so right now we're in a normal waking state, which is beta. We can get into some gamma. But as we start to transition to sleep, we get more into alpha. And the brain waves start to slow down. And then we go to theta. And then from there we go to deep delta sleep, slow wave, uh, non-REM delta sleep. And this is the most anabolic stage that the human body can be in. Just being up is catabolic. Even if you're sitting doing nothing, your body is in this kind of catabolic state. It's breaking down faster. It's like you're plugging into this infinite energy source when you're sleeping and getting that deep delta sleep. Because this is when you're producing the vast majority of your human growth hormone. You produce 70% of your human growth hormone during sleep. Kids have so much of it. This is why they have so much energy. But for us, it's right around 18 to 20, there's a pretty sharp decline in HGH production. And my argument is it's a cultural thing too because around 18 to 20, you don't have rules. Like, you know, you're out of the house and you don't, have, you don't abide by a schedule. And so, see, I know for me, when I went to college, like, I didn't think about it ever about getting, you know, whatever amount of sleep. And so what we want to do is... And there, and, and we've actually we can look at the research now. People who are getting six hours of high quality sleep, crushing it with their blood sugar levels, uh, memory tests, performance. Folks who might be getting 
eight hours of crappy sleep, right? So it's not just the quantity does matter, but the quality matters a lot. And what it really boils down to is getting efficient sleep cycles, spending the appropriate amount of time in each cycle for you, which is going to be a little bit different for everybody. And sleep cycles on average are about 75 minutes to maybe 115 minutes, but we'll just say 90 for average. So 90 minute sleep cycles. I recommend that you do get four a night. So that for the average person, that would be around six at minimum. And from there, but you might need an extra sleep cycle complete. So that would be like seven and a half. Some folks, it's nine hours. LeBron James, he nine hours, like he's part of his training, you know, and I quoted him in the book as well. And Usain Bolt, fastest human ever. He said this, that uh, sleep is a part of his training because it enables his body to absorb the training better. And those were his words. And so that's what it really boils down to. And there are certain things, and we'll talk about some of them today, that throw your sleep cycles totally out of balance. And you might think you're getting eight hours of sleep, but objectively, if we use a sleep monitor, you can be missing several hours of sleep by making some of these mistakes. I love it. And going back to the brain waves and everything you were sharing, I mean, we now know that your brain is going into a deep DNA repair mode at night when it's sleeping. It's got its little trash can cells, trash dump truck cells that are going in and offloading. And uh, I mean, you probably know the science on it way better than I do. We talked about a bunch about it in Broken Brain, but there's so many factors that are happening while we sleep, especially inside the brain. Oh, listen to this. And this might freak you out a little bit, but your brain shrinks while you're sleeping. And it can shrink, you know, it can shrink about 30%. And it's because... Physically in size? Like literally in size. Yes, yes. (laughs) And this is because... Um, when you're awake, there are a lot, I mean, your brain is doing just so many things. Yeah. We're talking like millions and millions of processes every microsecond. And there's a lot of metabolic wastes that occur from that. And that's all good, but we have to get those things out. Your brain has to flush that stuff out and it's kind of hanging on to a lot of it until it can go into rest mode and do its deep cleaning. And it would, it wouldn't be like that if our lymphatic system was connected, like, but we have the blood brain barrier. And so they don't directly like link up because, you know, this is kind of this extracellular fluid throughout our bodies. But your brain has its own kind of lymphatic system, right. this extracellular waste management system called the glymphatic system, which is a little shout out to the glial cells that run glial it. Glial cells, yeah. And the crazy thing about it is that when you're sleeping, it's upwards of 10 times more active than when you're awake, this glymphatic system. So I'm talking, it is going into hyperactivity to clean your brain and to get rid of these uh, metabolic waste products while you're sleeping. And one of the craziest things in, that, is, um, that we're seeing now with conditions like dementia and Alzheimer's is looking like it's not only are we referencing like type 3 diabetes, but it's very strongly looking like it's an inability of the brain to detoxify itself. And so A what are we seeing? waste and plaque and all sorts of things. What are we seeing? This epidemic of sleep deprivation. Mm. Let's talk about, we, we, we've set the problem up, right? What can happen to your health when you don't get good sleep? We talked about why sleep is important. What are the things that typically throw people off when the conversation comes to, hey, how'd you sleep last night? It's primarily focused on what you were saying earlier, which is quantity over quality. Take us through some of the things that impact the quality of our sleep. Absolutely. And can throw it off or on. Absolutely. You know, let's talk about, since I've got this little kombucha here, yeah. 
let's talk about this because you know in kombucha shout out to kombucha it's it's wonderful i hope i didn't do a product placement but you know <laughs> send, send a check to the show broken brain <laughs> uh, but you know it's made with black tea right so it's caffeinated it's there's some yeah. caffeine in here and depending on your metabolism for caffeine wow like i'll just share one study with you so what they did was they took uh, test subjects and they gave them caffeine directly before they go to sleep three hours before they go to sleep, and even six hours before they go to sleep. And they found that even six hours out was enough to dramatically uh, suppress their sleep quality. So what happened was, subjectively, the test subjects thought that, say, they got eight hours of sleep. Objectively, by having caffeine even six hours before bed, they lost one hour of their sleep. So they were unconscious, so you don't know it, but it's because they're not going through their sleep cycles effectively. And immediately, so first of all, it's just like, wow, that's kind of crazy, but I'm asking why, what's going on? Two things. Number one, we do know caffeine is a pretty powerful nervous system stimulant. And kombucha is on the lower end of the scale, by the way, but if you're sensitive, it could be a problem at night. But, you know, an average cup of coffee, you know, we'll just say 200 milligrams. Caffeine is a very powerful nervous system stimulant, and it has a half-life on average somewhere around eight hours. So that means, if you, we'll say you get a grande, right? So it's like maybe 400 And so after eight hours, since it has an eight-hour half-life, 200 milligrams are still active in your system. And that can really kind of keep your your nervous system lit up, which controls your neurotransmitters, which are related to your sleep. And eight hours after that, half of that is still active, so 100 milligrams and so on and so on. Some people have a better metabolism for caffeine. Most of us are somewhere in the middle. Some people can't really touch it at all, and they're doing it every day and don't know that this is the reason they need more caffeine. Is this mess in their sleep? So that's number one. Number two is the role of this was considered like a throwaway, like a byproduct of metabolism. Uh, It's called adenosine, all right, adenosine. Now we know that it's pretty important because as you're going through the day and you're building up these byproducts, this adenosine molecules, they fit into receptor sites that as they start to get filled up, it starts to nudge your body to go into sleep mode. It starts to nudge you to go to sleep. And... Caffeine has this really interesting ability because its structure is so similar to adenosine, it fits into those adenosine receptor sites. And so even though your body's producing these metabolic wastes that should be fitting in to nudge you to go to sleep mode, they can't fit in there. And so caffeine basically tricks your body into not knowing how tired you are. So I hope that makes sense. It makes absolute sense. And I think there's a lot of people that are out there that can relate. There's a lot of people who even feel that, caf- oh, caffeine doesn't affect me. I know I, f- I never really grew up drinking coffee. I never drank coffee and when I was at university, a little bit of green tea, that sort of stuff. And then when I finally started having coffee, I am a fast metabolizer of caffeine. I got my genetics done, and I can see it on there. And I also just have always felt it. But I used to think, oh, I could have a little espresso at night. It doesn't bug me. And I don't drink coffee regularly, so I probably have a better tolerance in general. And the quality of my sleep, when I really started paying attention and tracking my sleep better, I realized the quality was off. I still may have slept and fell asleep pretty quickly, and maybe I still got seven, eight hours, but my quality would always be thrown off. Yeah, and that's ultimately what we want to get people to. We don't need all of these fancy tracking things. Those can be great, but we want to start to pay more attention to the subtle things like how do you feel? How do you look? How are you performing throughout the day? How is your brain working? Like paying attention to those things. And full disclosure, I just want to share this. I'm a fan of caffeine. And I, I just started drinking coffee, actually. Maybe it's getting close to two years ago. And like my whole life, I was just like, because I'm very big on 
not having disgusting things. And so I thought coffee not was super disgusting, disgusting things. I know it sounds crazy, <laughs> but I'm very driven by pleasure, you know, like yeah. we're pleasure creatures. And so for with my experience with coffee, I was like, I was a little kid and I had some of my grandma's, I took a sip and I was like, I'll never have that again. It's like a little kid having beer, maybe. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like Folgers. Like, it was like Folgers, you know? And so then I had uh, some really good coffee. Mm-hmm. And my wife kept raving about it, first of all. And it was organic. It was that, all the little good things. And so I tried it one day, and I was like, oh, my God. This is good. Like, and now I get it. Like, yeah. I really – it's coffee isn't just coffee. It's an it's experience. It's, it's you a know, It's a thing, experience. you know? And so I'm a big fan, but it's just – so the, the question is, okay, so how do we modulate this so we can enjoy our, our coffee and our caffeine or your tea without it damaging your sleep? And so the number one thing is very simply having a caffeine curfew, you know, giving yourself a cutoff time, if, if at all possible. If you feel that this is something that's bothering you, it could potentially be bothering you. And so for me, it's noon. Like, I don't have caffeine after that. I've had, actually had it one time after that, like in all the, you know, these couple of years. And so that's number one. But sometimes you might find yourself in a situation, maybe you got work to do, you know, you're working, you know, a research paper or something like that. And so what do you do? And if you do have some caffeine a little bit later, here's a little hack. And I'm not, I don't like to, to do this very often because I want you to just do the, the, the thing. But L-theanine, all right, L-theanine kind of counteracts the effects of caffeine. And I shared this study recently on my show, but um, so folks who were... And this is like doing, you know, cognitive tests. Folks who were given caffeine performed, you know, better than not having caffeine, which we kind of know. But when they were given L-theanine with the caffeine, they performed even better. So it has a synergistic effect on giving you this kind of calm energy because it counterbalances. But also, from my experience in folks who take it in the evening just by itself, not along with the caffeine – but it helps them to go into that sleep mode a little bit easier. So it's a little hack if you ever find yourself in that situation. But just do you know do a little Doctor Google on it, L-theanine and caffeine, and it's pretty interesting stuff. I think you mentioned something earlier is that sometimes you don't know what's affecting you. So if you've never gone two weeks not having coffee afternoon, it's almost like it can be part of a sleep cleanse, right? It can be part of something you try because if you until you try it, it's almost like how they use a medical elimination diet. Until you've gotten rid of gluten, dairy, sugar, all at the same time in functional medicine, they put you on an elimination diet. You don't really know what your sensitivities are until you bring it back in. So I think getting off of coffee for new, not having caffeine afternoon just for two weeks can be enough that people start to see if they have any insights. Yeah. And one of the things we want to be aware of, you know, even if you draw back on the amount of caffeine you've been having it so long, especially coffee, you know, there's like this, um, you know, people people know about the the coffee and poop connection, yeah. right? So there can be some rebound like constipation. So make sure, sure. that you're getting hydrated, having some prebiotics and uh, some resistant starch and things like that to help the digestion as well. Like I've dealt with this with a lot yeah. of different patients over the years, <laughs> and so also, I, and I usually don't pull people off. Yeah. I have them switch it up because mm-hmm. caffeine is not the same yeah. in everything. It is subtly so like different. some yerba mate or green tea. Exactly. Switching to that exactly. Yeah. yeah, you know, and so. There's so many cool ways we can experience and get vibes and, and different nutrients from other things. And that's a good segue to the next issue that could be causing people problems. Yeah, tell us. Break it down. And this has to do with nutrient deficiencies, you know. And it's something so simple. You could be doing all the sleep hygiene stuff correctly, you know, the caffeine and the, the, the dark environment and, like, getting to bed by a certain time. But if you're deficient in key nutrients, like, and I call them, I've got a list of them. They're good sleep nutrients. These are... 
prerequisites for making sleep-related hormones and neurotransmitters that enable you to actually go through your sleep cycle. For example, uh, we'll use uh, Public Library of Science published a study looking at a simple vitamin C deficiency and found that test subjects who were deficient in vitamin C had more interrupted sleep. So they woke up more frequently during the night. And simply balancing out that deficiency enabled them to have more consistent sleep. So we want to be mindful of that and making sure we're getting these key nutrients in, but also the form of the nutrient too. Because even vitamin C, there's like, see, this is what, I wasn't taught this in school. You know, this was a miseducation of Sean yeah, Stevenson. Yeah, it told you vitamin C is vitamin C is vitamin C. That's it. You know, even like Mendela's table of elements, like that's not how nature works. Like magnesium on that table is like ash. That's not even like live magnesium. How does it work when it's alive? And so now we know that just like, just like the B vitamins, like there's many of them. There are also many forms of vitamin C. There are many forms of vitamin D and the list goes on and on. We get that intelligence through food. It's very difficult to get it in a pill, in a supplement that are synthetic forms of those things. Because our body can't absorb it properly. Most it's of the time. It's not used to it. It doesn't look familiar. Yeah, you, because your genes have really evolved communicating with food stuff, you know. So um, vitamin C is one. Another one is uh, magnesium is a huge one. Absolutely. Oof. This is probably the biggest one for most people because in our culture, in our society, it's the number one mineral deficiency. And I remember having a conversation with Mark Hyman, and he was talking about is responsible for over 300 biochemical processes in the body. Now we know it's over 325 biochemical processes. We've discovered a few more. And so when you're deficient in magnesium, what that really means is that's 325 things your body can't do or can't do efficient, efficiently if you're deficient in it. So your body wants to do all this cool stuff for you, but it can't even do it if you have this one mineral deficiency and over 80% of the population is deficient in magnesium. All right, so um, one of the studies, and so they were actually looking at insomniacs and every one of them had a magnesium deficiency. Simply balancing out and getting their magnesium levels up enable them to have a more normal sleep. Almost comparable as if they didn't have insomnia simply by balancing out that one deficiency. So the question is, how do we do this? Food first. Anything green is going to be a good source of magnesium. Uh, but that's probably not going to be enough because it's responsible for so much. That's why it gets zapped so quickly. Especially if people have been deficient for years. Yeah. And also just stress. Like we have a totally different stress. Magnesium operates, how to best put this, it's really more of like a calmative uh, mineral and the channels that it's related to, like relaxation of the muscles, proper muscle function, pathways with sleep. And so these are things that are really stressed today. And so I recommend a lot of people that, you know, clients that would come in, this was probably the one thing that I did recommend people do supplementally because I, again, it's really food first approach, but there are great supplements out there. There's magnesium citrate. Natural calm. Yeah. And there's, Here's the thing too, man. Uh, Epsom salt, right? These and it's storied to help people to um, sleep Relax. better, heal muscles faster. It's just a form of magnesium. It's a magnesium salt, and so taking it internally. But here's the catch, though: is it's difficult to take an oral magnesium supplement to get your levels up because it pulls water to your bowels, and so it can cause like a. Uh, I call it clinically a disaster pants is what I call it. <laughs> Especially if it's a citrate versus the, the glycinate. Yeah, glycinate, yeah. Glycinate. And so it just depends on the person and how they're going to respond. Some people could take a little bit more, but – and some people might 
it might be helpful to get a little Especially poop action going. Coffee and they're moving yeah. over to uh, green tea. There you go. You need a little bit of little little assistance. Little assistance. You know, a little Steve, little Steve Nash <laughs> in there. You know, and so that's that's one thing is. But for me, I love topical magnesium. You know, spray it on your skin. Some of them, the really good ones, are like ninety nine percent absorbable. Your body can only use as much as it. Is there a brand that you like? Ease. Ease. Yeah, I've been using that for like five years. I literally travel with it. Just keep it with me all the time. I love this stuff. Amazing. So yeah, but and even we can't even talk about the nutrient stuff without understanding that can your gut bugs even associate with these nutrients? Because that's where the real final frontier is. We're talking about human health and wellness. And of course, there's so much conversation. People who listen to shows like this are very much aware of the microbiome. But I've been, I've been in it, like just really like talking to the top people and researching this subject matter. And man, if there's anything that's going to affect your sleep, it's your gut health. And I was surprised to find this out. And this is because many of the sleep-related hormones and neurotransmitters are made and stored in your gut. Mm -hmm. And if your microbiome is off, it can mess up the whole system. For example, everybody's heard of uh, serotonin, you know, at this point and how important it is with your, your mood, it's related to happiness. We know now over 80% of your serotonin is made and stored in your gut, it's the interchromaffin cells. And here's how this relates to sleep. Serotonin is a precursor to making melatonin, all right? And so it's part of that process. And so if you're into chromaffin cells, and so as Caltech researchers found that um, these bacteria in our gut communicate directly with cells that make this stuff. And so that's number one, but melatonin itself. And I just, just being here and being able to geek out, man, I got to share this. Please. Melatonin, I was taught in college that melatonin is made in the pineal gland. That's it. Next, you know, next page. We now know that there's 400 times more melatonin in your gut than in your brain. And you can actually have your pineal gland removed, which I'm not saying to do that. Don't, don't just go do that. But it's called pinealectomy. But you can have it removed and the levels of melatonin still stay relatively the same in your gut. And so with that said, melatonin is not just related to sleep. We hear melatonin, that's what we think about. Melatonin is a major driver, if not the master controller of your circadian system, your biological clock, your body clock, that is as real as the time on your cell phone and on your watch. It is the most real thing in our universe. We are lined up with the dernal patterns, nocturnal patterns of life itself. And what the thing about humans is we can manufacture time, like daytime, and we can manufacture nighttime. Through lights, through technology. Yeah. But your body is always looking to be on rhythm because melatonin, being that it's a master driver of your circadian clock, it's regulating and influencing all of your other hormones because they're all being produced based on the time of day it is. And so it's, that's one part of it. It's also a very powerful anti-cancer um, hormone as well. And so one of the studies I cited in the book related, it was a huge you know, nurse's study, and they found that... Um, the nurses who were working the night shift, you know, doing the shift work and working overnight had over 30% greater incidence of breast cancer. And it was just like a very interesting finding. And it's just like, what, what's going on there? And it's really related to this. Well, one of the big components is its relationship to insulin and also melatonin. 
because it's like it really does a great job at helping to regulate your immune system, which is thus killing cancer cells. So that and also now we know it's powerful fat burning uh, potential driver of fat loss as well, and which might sound crazy to some people. Like I've never heard anything like that. And so what was discovered, and this was published in the journal Obesity Reviews, they found that melatonin secretion triggers your body's production and mobilization of brown adipose tissue, right? So this is a type of fat that burns fat, right? So when we're trying to get rid of body fat, we're generally talking about white adipose tissue or WAT. So brown adipose tissue or BAT, such a cool name, it's bad fat. <laughs> so I'm bad fat. Brown adipose tissue is, is brown because it's so dense in mitochondria. You know, it's like, you know, people, may, I know they've heard this many times on the show, but it's the energy power plants basically in our cells. And it's so dense in energy. Babies have a lot of brown adipose tissue. It's, a, it's involved in heating us up. So we know that we can produce and mobilize more brown adipose tissue by getting ourselves cold. So this is like a big movement now with everybody doing cryotherapy and right. cold thermogenesis techniques. But sleep. If you just have a normal sleep cycle and you're in darkness, there's two prerequisites to make melatonin. You need darkness and you need a cyclical pattern to make it adequately. And you're going to boost your fat loss. To the degree, a study published, and this was conducted by researchers at Chicago University. Now I'm just going to um, super synthesize it. But basically, they found that when folks were sleep deprived on the same exact diet, they sleep deprived them, then they put them in this you know, calorie restricted diet to see how does sleep impact fat loss, not weight loss? And so they had test subjects in one phase and they sleep deprived them. So they're getting like five hours of sleep, five and a half hours to be exact. Another phase of the study, they let them get adequate sleep, which if you're sleeping more, you're going to tend to sleep better. Eight and a half hours of sleep. They compiled all the data and they found that the test subjects lost 55% more body fat simply by sleeping more, Right which is crazy because we think we need to exercise more. We got to cut more calories. They didn't do any of that. They just got more sleep and they lost more fat. It's like you start pulling the thread of sleep and you see how fundamentally it's tied to into every single aspect of our life. And if there's anything that anybody's taking away from this podcast, it's just that sleep is so much more than sleep and just laying down. I love that, man. Sleep is so much more than sleep. Because, and that's, it's almost like, it's even funny to say because it's almost like our society has just put sleep in this bu bucket as like an afterthought. Yeah. It's an afterthought. It's like, okay, we have to sleep, right? It's something that we have to do. It's so crucial to all of our health goals. And I'm so glad that you wrote a book on it because it, it takes us in this next section here, which is this increasing rate of we're seeing more sleep disruption probably through more than anything, like separate from caffeine and other stuff, the latest thing is like just technology and technology's impact on that. So give us the big picture of how technology, phones, Wi-Fi all play a role in our sleep. Sure, sure. Um, I think the best example is um, Harvard researchers confirmed what we already know and a lot of people are talking about, which is, and I've been talking about this for a long time, that blue light does in fact suppress melatonin, and increases cortisol. And the issue there is cortisol is not bad. It's just the timing and the amount that's produced can be problematic. Cortisol is super important for your thyroid even working. And, you know, we can go down that whole channel. But the bottom line is this blue light spectrum or even white light, you know, there's a certain, it's basically, what it really does is this, it tells your body 
that it's daytime. And so it throws off that circadian clock. So you start to produce more daytime-related hormones, namely cortisol, because this is when it's produced. And melatonin is suppressed. And now here's the numbers that they gave. And I'm just synthesizing this again. But basically, they, they found that every hour you're on your device at night, you suppress melatonin for 30 minutes. And so if you're on your device for just, say, three hours, you know, staring into your phone or watching a movie or whatever the case might be, which I'm not, I'm going to give you the, you can still do this stuff. All right. But every, so just three hours, what happened was that's going to be 90 minutes of suppression of melatonin. So you can go to sleep, but you can, there's a difference between being unconscious and getting good sleep. And so because melatonin is going to be suppressed, so you're not going to go through your sleep cycle efficiently. And uh, so that's really the the nuts and bolts of it is our tech, and this is not stopping anytime soon. Like we're, it's just, we're just seeing the beginnings of our interaction with our tech. And so how do we deal with this? I do recommend, of course, we give ourselves a little bit of a sleep curfew, you know, give yourself some time to unplug and just be, you know, it's super good for you on multiple levels because there are, there are hacks like blue light blocking glasses, which I've been wearing and talking about for many years. Uh, blue light blocking apps on your devices, you know, especially if you have like a smartphone that's built into the iPhones now. And if people have an Android, you can get like Twilight and other apps. Just go to your app store. Flux on your computer, F.L.U.X. But what about your TV? Blue light glasses. Blocking glasses can be great. So you could still do those things and they improve your sleep. You know, many people, we got a lot of anecdotal evidence, though. We haven't really had any well done studies. But and I know from my personal experience as well. But the issue is that when you're on your devices, your brain is still very active. Like there are parts of your Extremely brain active. lighting up, especially the dopamine pathway and um, the opioid system is even triggered because social media is like we are hardwired to get addicted to it because the human mind is like driven to, to look for things. Like dopamine is it's not necessarily just about pleasure. It's about driving you to look for pleasure. And every time you seek on social media, you scroll, you seek, you find, you seek, you find. And so you get a constant reward as well. And it starts to, when you get the reward, you get a little hit to that opioid pathway. And before you know, it's like having a slot machine in your pocket for real, you know. And so it's very difficult to just be like, oh, put your phone down for 30 minutes. And so I don't do that. I don't tell people to do that. I recommend 30-minute screen curfew, but... You, just like anything else, you're trying to change that habit. You have to replace it with something of greater or equal value. You can't just sit there and twiddle your thumbs or like meditate if that's not your bag. You know, you got to fill it with something joyful so you can actually like unplug from this. It's going to improve your sleep and probably your relationships because one of the things you could do is talk to somebody like a real person. I know it sounds rogue and crazy, but you know, you could talk <laughs> to your kids or your significant other. Um, because literally, man, I've stood on many stages, thousands of people that I've been able to survey and I ask grown adults, okay, 30 minutes for bed. What can we do instead? Sometimes they're perplexed. I like, saw you do this at the Bulletproof conference. People like, I don't know. Like a couple people know, <laughs> like, and it sounds crazy. One, you know, it was the most beautiful part was the guy was like bubble bath. I was like, yes, that, you could do that. You know, that guy loves his bath. And, um, but you know, hanging out connecting with your significant other, um, you know, physical books. Podcasts are great because you don't have to stare at a screen to listen to a podcast or audio book. Um, I have a chapter in the book relating the relationship between sex and sleep. And so that can be something you do instead of being on your phone. 
I don't know if people like on their phone doing it now. I don't know. That's some new stuff. Might be, you know, but hopefully like it's more entertaining than Facebook. And, you know, just having an evening routine that we used to have when we were children that, you know, we're just big adult babies now. We're just like, we get off our device and we're like, I really should get to bed. Yeah. And I think that the, the point that you made that's really important is that a lot of people say, put away your phone, put away your phone. Sometimes even people say, like, turn, turn your Wi-Fi off. But you're talking about the importance of replacing it with something. We got to give you something. It's like telling people who've just been eating junk food their entire life, stop eating junk food. It's like, well, what do I eat? What do I eat? What do I do? So if you're listening and you haven't figured out that routine for yourself, I think that's a great question is that what do you want to replace it with that has greater value, equal or greater value for you, something that you look forward to in your routine? Do you turn your Wi-Fi off at night? That's so funny. Nobody's ever asked me this. I do. I have it on a timer. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Especially also kids in the household. It's good yeah. for them. See, you know, the, the data that we do have is, is concerning, but, you know, the sto- full story is not in. We know that we're messing with some, some invisible, uh, you know, stuff that we don't know the long-term ramifications, bottom line. It's and so I'd rather be, just by with the preliminary stuff that we do have, I'd rather be on the safer side. And, you know, if we can shut it off for a little bit, so be it. And now what we're really looking at here is, you know, like truly like wall, the Wi-Fi can go right through these walls. So it definitely, it is definitely going through your brain. It's going through the cells in your body and your, your humans are incredibly conductive period. Like we're, we're super conductive. This is why nobody's like psyched to like grab a butter knife and stick it in a socket. Like you are conductive. And, you know, static electricity, these kind of things. So we have a little bit of a relationship. So I'm trying to paint a picture. And even a heart monitor, it's measuring the electricity, the electrical current given off by your heart. Like we are electrical, like conductive entities. And so what we do know is that, you know, things like Wi-Fi and these different radio waves and stuff we're playing with and we don't know the ramifications, they're going through and they, they are interrupting that cellular communication. And you're just really a society of cells. That's really what you are. And you want the cells to be working together on one accord, one mission. But some of these things can throw off that communication. And, you know, some of these cells can, like, start throwing bottles and, like, acting up a little bit, you know. And um, that's what we're seeing now with potentially relationships to, you know, issues with cancer and, um, you know, cognitive issues. But, again, it's – I haven't seen enough to, like, make a full stance on it, but I definitely – Personally, I, I shut it off at night. And especially, I mean, a lot of people keep their cell phone right next to them at night. Last year, I think it was the World Health Organization labeled cell phone radiation like a class two carcinogen. And so we know that there are concerns more. There's a really good podcast that was done back in like 2005 on This American Life, the podcast show out of uh, Chicago. And they interviewed a writer from GQ who did a whole expose on sort of cell phone, cellular radiation and one of the things they talked about inside of their interviewing like very like, you know, mainstream researchers uh, was that a lot of the research on cell phone radiation is coming out of Europe. And 80% of the studies that are done that are independent or government funded show significant concern. But the ones that come from industry that they flood the market with are not going to show at as high of a concern. So full story is not in like the way they said that, but huge cause for concern. There's another one that... Uh, a lot of people aren't as familiar with, let's talk about temperature. How does temperature and, and how 
and your temperature of sleeping under a blanket and your body temperature at night, how does that impact sleep? Sure. And so this goes back to the goal is to have efficient sleep cycles. And your temperature and your environment controls, um, has, a, has a really interesting influence on your sleep cycles. And so, again, I was taught in school, human body, 98.6 degrees. Our temperature fluctuates all the time, all right? And, you know, eat, exercise and, you know, just throughout the day and just getting up, moving around, your temperature's moving around. But what's so interesting is that there is a natural drop in your core body temperature at night that I had no idea about. And what it is and what, what I believe to be is that it's um, when, that, when your core body temperature t- uh, drops, it's signaling or kicking off some of these sleep-related processes. And so from, from what I'm seeing is that drop is related to like sleep-related hormones, neurotransmitters, reparative enzymes being released. Like it's putting your body, it's setting you up to get that good high-quality sleep. And so here's what we know. In relationship to that. So this was a Dutch study. It was super interesting. And so they took insomniacs. They fitted them with these thermosuits that dropped their uh, skin temperature just one degree Celsius. And it was nuts. Like they fell asleep equally as fast as people who didn't. Well, it was just a couple minutes difference who didn't have insomnia. Their sleep cycles were almost as efficient. They slept almost as long. And, you know, other symptoms like, you know, depression, all this stuff start to dissipate, all from just cooling them off. You know, and there's another study where they were, they uh, fitted them with these cooling caps and just ran cold water over their heads. And same thing, just basically eliminating this, uh, this so, you know, their, their category or the diagnosis of insomnia just by cooling them off, which was totally crazy because it was just like ambient or cool off, you know, like we don't hear that part. And so, yeah, temperature is definitely a potential issue. And in our culture today, everybody listening more than likely has the opportunity to kind of modulate and control their environment and their temperature a little bit. But you might think, well, that's not natural. Well, if you were actually living naturally, you would have one temperature during the day and at night it'll be colder no matter where you are. And so we're just trying to honor that process and cool it off a little bit. And researchers agree that it's somewhere in the ballpark, the best sleep is found when it's kind of a little bit chilly, like 62 to, to 68 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And I like it cold. My wife does not. All right. She's, you know, she's from Kenya, like you, you know. And so she grew up just like it's a little bit warmer temperature. But we found a happy medium because we tested. She sleeps better when it's cooler. And, but she doesn't like to get up in the morning when it's cold in the house. Yeah. So I get my butt <laughs> up, go turn the thermostat up. And also for folks that are dealing with that, because a lot of times we kind of have our opposite and there's there's uh, devices like the chili pad right. that you can lay on your side of the bed. And like, it's been game changing for some people, you know, like my friend Kelly Starrett, Dr. Kelly Starrett, who I talk about in the book, New York Times bestseller, super smart guy, changed the game for him, you know, because he had that struggle with, you know, he's like a warmer, hot bodied guy, you know, and his wife is like, you can't, you can't make it any colder in the house. And so I'm, I'm not saying that it saved his marriage, you know, but maybe, you know. <laughs> no, Chili Pad is great. Love what that team is up to. And uh, what I especially like about it is that when you, it is a device that you have to plug in, then you fill it with water, but then the sheet that goes on your bed, there's no um, electricity involved in it. It just pumps in through pressure, cold water that it chills down. 
There's also the bed jet, but you can't really set the control on that. It's more just like the air. But some of those devices can be huge changes for anybody, especially if you are somebody who regularly finds yourself tossing and turning. You fall asleep pretty well at night, but you wake up in the middle of the night and you're tossing and turning a lot. You should just double check and see if temperature is a factor in you getting up. Anything else you want to toss in about sleep, brother? I think that's a lot to chew on. That's a lot to chew on. (laughs) So I want to transition to mindset for a second, because going back to the beginning part of your journey, you know, you had this moment of hitting your rock bottom. And I think, you know, listening to a few of your shows and the work that you do, essentially in a big picture way, you're trying to help people from hitting their own rock bottom and that they don't have to wait for it to get that bad. They don't have to wait for my old business partner, Dr. Alejandro Younger. He'd always say, you know, you don't have to wait for the eviction notice to then decide to make a big change. So mindset is a huge factor inside of that. When you talk to people who are just getting started in their journey and they know they don't feel good, they have what Dr. Hyman calls uh, FLC, feel like crap syndrome, Mm -hmm. and they're just starting, you know, how important is mindset? And what are some of the first things that you even start off with, like bare bones basics? Because we all know what to do. We all know at least the right next step for us. And if you don't, you can just do a quick Google search, read a few articles, and usually find it. But usually it's the mindset that gets in the way. What is that first step in, in working with our mindset to head down the path and the vision that we want to create for our life and our health? Yeah, that's an incredibly powerful question. And this is really where a, a master like does his work because the tactics are simple. You know, eat good food, move get some sleep, like simple stuff. But the question is, why don't we do it? And, you know, of course there is, there is an issue with education sometimes, you know, we think that we're supposed to be doing one thing and we're doing something else. And I I really work to, to bring the best possible education possible for people. I said best possible, possible, (laughs) but I really possible, double possible, Kim possible um, (laughs) for people and, and making it so that it's, uh, accessible, but also as true across the board as can be, but also paying attention to your uniqueness because, man, no diet is going to work for two people the same way. And the same thing with our lifestyle practices. And so for me, what I did primarily when folks were coming into my office is asking questions. You know, again, questions are the answer. And looking around to find that point of leverage because we all have it. And you just said it perfectly. My job is to try to help people to intervene before they hit their rock bottom because inevitably it's coming. And working to find a place where we can have like a, a, a faux rock bottom maybe, you know, like a safety net you hit. And you're like, oh, damn, I was close to the ground, you know. And so by kind of manufacturing that by finding leverage. And so it's really looking at what, are they, what do they really want to do this for and people, you know, a lot of people What's now, their why? yeah, they're talking about that, you know, the finding the why that makes you cry and looking around in there, but it has to be even deeper than that for some people, you know, and finding multiple, it's kind of like, I think beliefs are like, like a, like a table and ha- having legs on the table. Like if you got one, like one leg, you don't have a table unless it's like some super like balancing guy. Right, Harlem Globetrotter of tables. <laughs> or if you got two legs, still very unstable. Three legs, now we got some stability. You give it more legs. So it's like giving these beliefs or these whys, giving it more legs. 
And so I'll just look for layers and layers and layers to really cement in how important this is. And But also you have to finesse in. You have to pay attention to the person because for some people, it's inspiration of a greater life possibility. For some people, that's just not it. It's it's the pain. Pain and, loss. Yeah. Or recognizing what they're losing. Yeah. And you have to be willing to go there and to look at that stuff. And a lot of times it's just right there in front of your face because most of the stuff, man, and like having coaches and people in your life are just pointing out stuff that's in your blind spot. You know, so that's what I really do, man. It's like I sit on the same side of the table as you and like look at your life and we start figuring out this stuff and finding the points of leverage. And so we all have to do that. We can do that with ourselves, you know, and really get honest. But it's difficult to do it by yourself because you're with yourself all the time, you know. And you think you know yourself and we'll tell ourselves these stories. And so I highly encourage people, if they're really wanting change, is to talk to somebody, you know, um, trusted advisor or, you know, some professionals. Because there's been stigma even attached to, like, seeking help for various things. And it's just silly. Like, we're at a time now where there's a lot more of that and this whole, like, wave of coaches in various dimensions, but getting some help, getting another perspective and being open can absolutely be transformative for people. I want to talk about one subject that we haven't talked about on the podcast before, which is, you know, you shared earlier that you come from a biracial background. And uh, I think as wellness continues to grow, rightly so, there's a lot of people that point to it and say, you know, often the conversation can be a little monochromatic. There's not a lot of diversity. And how do we bring wellness, especially to black and Latino communities and even worldwide to other communities that may not have access to this information? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, we see when folks are in their, you know, kind of indigenous culture, um, you know, even in Kenya, like the health is just so much better. But things have evolved now and gotten worse since, you know, yeah, kind of Western diet, diet, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but when folks are just, um, I mean, the, the rates of heart disease and cancer, you know, cancer rates in India, for example, are diabetes much in India lower. Is like, I think the second fastest rate of, di- of diabetes anywhere in the world. Yeah, and that is going up, right? Yeah. So we see these different things, but having more of a, your, your cultural diet, the rates are lower pretty much across the board for all cultures. Then the question is, why here in the United States are there such, such a imbalance of things like diabetes in the African-American and Hispanic communities? Minorities, just period. You know, Native Americans, we see these much higher rates of different conditions. And the question is, is it just faulty genes? Is it just like bad luck? No, it's the environment. It's, it's access. And so for me, I, I grew up in a paradigm where I, didn't, I just didn't see this stuff. And a really powerful statement, super simple, is that if you don't see it, you can't be it. And so I didn't have any reference point of, like, I had a birthday party at McDonald's. You know, like, that was my jam. Like, my goal was just to get some fast food. And because it's cheap, that's the major key. And, you know, looking at economies of scale. But it's really strange because making a, a, a cheeseburger is very cost intensive. How in the world is it half the price of an avocado? Right? It literally just falls off a tree. <laughs> and this takes all this work to make. How? And it's just the way the system is, you know, government subsidies. It's just like the way things are structured is to make shitty food very cheap. 
And the main people who are going to be eating it is the people who have the lower income. And the way our society has been structured, like coming from, you know, a culture of slavery and trying to get your foot in as far as like sustainable neighborhoods and sustainable culture and just having any kind of lineage. You know, a lot of people don't really realize this, but even not even knowing where you come from and having your name, like your history is not taught in school. There's like a very deep psychosis. Like there's a very, it's a deep trauma. Like there are people walking around. It matter, that your background doesn't matter, that we're not going to talk about you. Are those some of the things that you're talking it's about? It's there. It's like uh, there's like P- PTSD just right off the bat, like being disconnected from a truth or a core. And I see this in so many wonderful cultures, you know, like the Jewish community and everybody coming together. And, you know, just driving around L.A. now, I'm seeing like there's this pocket over here. Everybody's kind of hanging out and clicked up by choice, proactively and sharing their culture. And of course, you know, many people are still being influenced by the fast food, the, we'll call it the drive through diet, but there's just this thread and many African-American people do not have that. And we can have these ideas of like what it might look like, but we don't really know. And I think that's something that really changed my life was like, my wife is from Africa, like, it's not some like, oh, I'm my African, like she is from Africa. And so having these, asking these questions, seeing this stuff firsthand, like what does this look like? Like her mother spent, you know, 40 years living in Africa and I'm getting closer to that side of me and the culture and starting to better relate to it because I can see it. And so I think the first thing and what I really want to just connect is, is exposure. And for all of us, no matter where we are, to help to encourage that because it's not your it's not your job to solve everybody's problems but you can lift people up just by um, helping to to give some exposure and some connection you know because there are wonderful communities here um, that are doing great things that are kind of scattered but bottom line I really want to share this is that when you and we know this this is this is just a minority issue but when you are in a state of survival, it's very difficult to have these higher level conversations. I literally, I could give a shit about any of this stuff that I'm talking about today. Coming from where I come from, I just wanted to survive. And I was going to fight you if I felt that you were a threat. And that's just the way that I was raised. Literally from four years old, my mom had me fighting. Like some little kids trying to fight, you go fight or I'm gonna fight you. And that's how I, I came up. She's sick, she's sick. She is physically, like you could see her and see she's physically unhealthy. It's very difficult to have compassion when you feel like shit. It's very difficult to make, to perspective take and to be patient when you are unhealthy within your own body. It's, it's not impossible. It's just harder. And so that's the conditions we're coming from. It's not easy to make these choices when you are concerned about survival and when you are physically unhealthy. And so our mission and what I want to drive people to do and to encourage is to start to be more proactive in helping people to get access to feeling better through food, through technology, right? We've got these different labs, the upgrade labs, like let's get one, you know, South Central, you know, like let's give people access to these things and and to be able to see it and what's possible. Because as I stated earlier, if you don't see it, you can't be it. There's so many people that are listening that are that are yoga teachers or health coaches on this podcast. It could be as simple as like go to, you know, the church in your area that's primarily of, you know, 
people from Latin America or, or African American community, you know, in Cleveland clinic, uh, has done a partnership with local churches, Dr. Hyman in the Cleveland area. And they do so a version of the Daniel plan, which is a faith based nutritional intervention system. And they go there and they just, they just cook a meal and they show everybody, they just show them what's possible. There has to be an introduction and it has to be more, I think going back to one of the earlier things, I think it's up to all of us because the health of one member in society is the health of all of us. Like actually on even a financial level, our, our entire healthcare system, we got to start looking after each other. We got to start looking after communities that don't have access to this information. And going back to what I, what I was uh, sharing earlier before I went on a tangent was that you were saying the power of questions. I think going to certain communities, going to people and just asking just questions and becoming more educated yourself and seeing how you can become more involved and um, I think you've been doing a great job at that and teaching your community about that. And uh, I hope that becomes more a part of the conversations that we see out there in the wellness world. Sean, thank you so much, man. We talked about it all. <laughs> yeah, for sure. This has been, yeah, amazing. Yeah, uh, thank you. Where can people find you? And, uh, and how can they go deeper into all the information that you uh, put out there? Sure, man. Well, you know, I just want to say this as well, that, you know, all of us, we have uh, innate gifts, talents, capacities within us. And to just give, you know, give more. It's not necessarily about money, but time, connections, find a way to serve. You know, my mother-in-law would go to um, teach inmates meditation, you know. And the only way that that was possible was because the judge was doing the meditation. You know, it's just like that access and what that can do. So if you're a meditation teacher, you teach yoga, you know, like, let's put your attention on, like, let's go and go into some, some communities and allow them to see what's possible and to share your gift or your connections. You might not be the person who, who does it, but talk to a friend of yours who does it. And we can start to really change our culture. And so for me, my, my gift, I believe, is through this show and through the podcast. And if I could add one other thing, because at the end of the day, it's really like the reason that we put our attention on our health and our wellness in these areas of our life is so we don't have to think about it that much and we can go do the things that bring us joy. And when you talk to really successful people who have a lot of joy in their life, service is a big capacity of it. So going back to your bed analogy, you know, find something great, equal or greater than playing on the phone that brings you that joy. I can't, the things, the times that I feel the most high, the times that I feel the most joy in my life is when I know that I'm being of service to other people and we can incorporate that into our lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, for me, um, you know, because I can get caught up in some of these issues and very passionate about them, but I have to realize that my time is best served by helping other people to feel good. And so my major medium of doing that is the Model Health Show and uh, very grateful to say that it's just crazy when you was uh, when you're doing the, the the opening. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, and to have the number one health podcast in the country is just like it. It doesn't. It just blows my mind sometimes in <laughs> thinking about it. And it's just been an incredible experience, and it's just a testament to putting that vitamin C in there, you know, that care, and creating these master classes. So whatever subject matter you're interested in, we've got something really special for you. And so you can check me out there where you listen to this amazing podcast. You can find me. It's called The, the Model Health Show. And also my home online is themodelhealthshow.com. So that's where you can find um, videos for every episode. And uh, my social media is there as well. I'm at Sean Model on Instagram. And Sleep Smarter as well. People could pick that up anywhere books are cool. sold. 
And uh, yeah, man, thank you so much for having me on. This has been really, really awesome. Sean, absolute pleasure. And just selfishly, I'm so excited that you're in LA now. We can hang out uh, even more. The secret's out. Secret's Let's out. Let's go. <laughs> thank you again. Thank you, man. Awesome, brother. Thanks, bro. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.